Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September 16th, 2016. So it's 9-16-16. It sounds cool, doesn't it? Doesn't really mean anything, but I'm in a good mood because it is Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, it's time for the Monster Show of the Week. Friday, 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 the Expert Council Show. This is a show you guys help to write because they're all questions that come from you for the expert council. I have a preparedness and home, uh, preparedness for home invasion, uh, response question for Brian Black from ITS Tactical today. Jeff Lawton will talk to us about, uh, digging swales in clay soils. Uh, we'll be talking about keeping dehydrated food, food dehydrated in humid climates with Gary Collins from the Primal Power Method. We'll talk about speculation versus investing with John Pugliano, the investing guru himself. And we will talk about all things gasoline octane as it relates to small engines from Stephen the Man Harris. And I'm going to answer a question on a different way to approach the homeschool question. It's actually quite cool. Before all of that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Hey, business owners, would you like the ability to reach more than 100,000 TSP community members for as little as $5 a year? If so, consider advertising your business in the TSP Business Directory. A listing in our directory shows your support of the community and a commitment to value-for-value exchange with other members. To find something or to be found, just check out the directory at tspbiz.com. That's tspbiz.com to learn more. Hey, folks, if silver and gold are not part of your current economic preparedness plan, they should be. In fact, for over eight years, I have recommended that listeners keep 5 to 10% of their wealth in precious metals as a wealth assurance program. And JM Bullion is my personal choice for all my precious metal purchases. They offer some of the best pricing in the industry and free shipping on top of it. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. All right, with that knocked out, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1872. So we are going to, or actually it's the episode is 1872, so we're going to look at the year 1872. Uh, Alex Shrugged has two for us today. I have, the first female presidential candidate is not a witch. Hmm. Unlike the curtain, never mind. Uh, surprise, John Wilkes, Wilkes Booth gets married. Wait a minute, ain't he dead by now? You'll have to read that to find out about it. Before I read the one I'm going to read for you, which is on the first female candidate not being a witch, I'm going to read, in other news, the UK now has a secret ballot. It's the law. Before this time, factory owners would helpfully review their employees' ballots to make sure they were voting correctly. Now all they can do is check the bumper stickers on our cars. I break free unicorns. <laughs> you know what? I might get a sticker that says that on it. I break free unicorns. Everybody else, you better run your ass. That'd be funny as hell. Anyway, Yellowstone is dedicated as the first national park. The area spans Montana and Wyoming territories. Over 2 million acres is set aside as a park for the enjoyment of the nation's citizens. But there's going to be a war with the Indians north of there. So don't pack up your RV just yet. Yeah, there's also a giant super volcano under there that everybody seems to forget about. And Popular Science Magazine begins publication. They are currently reprinting articles from English journals, such as distinguished scientists and philosophers as Charles Darwin and Herbert Spencer. Anyway, um, oh yeah, uh, i got to read this part. 
Uh, Alex says he read a great article from uh, Popular Science from 1872 on how schools are making our kids stupid. Ah, oh, it never ends. Wow, yeah. It's part of the plan. That's why we're using the same system that they were using in 1872. Thank you, Horace Mann. Anyway, the first female presidential candidate is not a witch. She's also not a prostitute, not a man, and not a lesbian. Victoria Woodhill is a, sur a suffragette. And this, that means she's uh, pushing for women's rights to vote. Okay, And despite any criticism she might receive in the modern day, she's a serious candidate, given that the obvious corruption uh, of the U.S. Grant administration and the inept campaign of the Democrats candidate Horace Greeley, just about anyone stands a chance of the presidency. Woodhull, Woodhull, I should say, is a newspaper editor and successful stockbroker at a time when women are not allowed to trade in the stock exchange. Luckily for women, one is not required to use the stock exchange to exchange stocks. She con contracts with men who make the trades for her where she is prohibited. Commodore Vanderbilt is one of her clients, and he has made millions following her advice. I'm going to pause there a second for those that don't know. Commodore Vanderbilt at this time is one of the wealthiest human beings that has ever walked the planet. Just to drive that home for you. Anyway, um, so she is a contender. Woodhull is running under the Equal Rights Party as they nominate, and they nominate Frederick Douglass, the pop popular author and ex-slave, as her vice presidential running mate. This is news to him, but he doesn't disavow the nomination, and he's a member of the Electoral College for New York, so it's official. Since newspapers are often used as political instruments, having Woodhull as a newspaper editor is not a problem. But a few days before the election, federal marshals arrest her for publishing an obscene newspaper. Months later, she is acquitted, but the damage is done. She will try for the formal for the presidential nomination again in 1884, but controversy surrounding her messy divorce will cause the suffragette to distance themselves from her. My take by Alex Shrug, Woodhull was not a witch. She was a medium. With so many dead after the war between the states, surviving relatives with, in despair, and so there was a market for mediums who could contact the dead. Woodhull was also a hypnotist, so her work as a medium might have been considered therapeutic. Nowadays, there's a popular TV show called Long Island Medium. I doubt it's real, but she seems to think she's helping people. Fine, she's not asking me to participate, and lots of people pray to their dead relatives and de or dead saints. It's so common a practice, it is usually ignored unless you're a politician. Then if you drop to your knees or pray to God for strength, you are labeled a nut. First Lady Nancy Reagan consulted her horoscope because to, of her concern for her husband's safety. It seemed a little foolish but harmless. Christine O'Donnell was running for the Senate for her uh, of her was was running for the Senate. A video of her younger self showed her declaring herself to be a witch. It seemed like a kid's joke to me, but controversy overwhelmed her campaign, so she produced an ad beginning with I'm not a witch. Her denial did more to damage her campaign than if she had said, Heck yeah, I'm a witch. Kiss my backside, you jerks. The other controversy with, with Victoria Woodhull seemed almost trivial. She was 34 years old. Her birthday uh, fell a few days before inauguration, so if she had won, she would have been 35 when she took the oath of office. At the time, no one cared, but apparently modern historians care now. The issues for female candidates are not tougher, just different. At least she had no missing emails to worry about, indeed. I just like to put out that the first uh, female official candidate for president to be nominated by her party was... Miss Woodhull, and the first African-American to be nominated for the vice presidency was Frederick Douglass. And yes, this was a serious campaign. It wasn't a joke. I would say that it was more likely that these two would have become our president in the election of 1872 than it is that Gary Johnson or Jill Stein would become our president today. And you might say, well, that's no big leap. 
Well, it, it, it kind of is. I would say it's, it's, it's more likely that had the things not gone the way they did with Woodhull, she had a better chance of becoming president than, let's say, Jill Stein and Gary uh, Johnson do of having their combined totals. Uh, put them over 33% and have more uh, of the, uh, of the you know, electoral process than the, either of the other two candidates. Um, it's kind of a buried little part of history because of, well, the powers that be buried it after they caused it to be destroyed. My take by Jack Spierko. <laughs> Some things never change. With that, let's take our first question for the expert counsel today. And uh, this is a question for Brian Black on preparedness and drills to be prepared for potential home invasion scenarios. It's Brian Black with another expert counsel question. This one comes from Bob in Lino, Texas, fellow Texas resident. Thank you, Bob. Uh, he's asked, my wife and I would like some guidance on how we can practice our response to a strange noise in the night or worse, the sound of breaking glass or a door being forced. Uh, some background, we live in a rural setting with neighbors not too, or too far away to hear much and Elliot's time is around 15 to 30 minutes at best. What should our strategy be beyond the dialing 911? We sleep with our 870 shotguns by the bed on each side and pistols on the nightstands. Are there drills we can run to practice our strategic response? How would drills be run together? from drills uh, run solo. Any suggestions would be great. Thanks, Bob. So, Bob, um, first I'd say your priority needs to be that, to have the right mindset for such an occurrence. So you can train all day for your response to these types of incidents, but the mental hurdle you'll actually need to clear will be more important in my opinion. So that starts with knowing the law, specifically the tax, Texas Capital Doctrine and its legal parameters. I won't really get into that here because I'm not the right person to give you legal advice. Um, rehearsing scenarios of what you might encounter in your response to them should be kind of an afterthought, in my opinion. So get your mindset squarely at first. Uh, you should have a plan, obviously, that includes which of you will be down one and which of you will be responding. Um, you know, that needs to be kind of an upfront discussion. You know, if you're aware of fields of fire, either both of you have a plan to clear your house together or only one of you is doing that job. So whatever you decide needs to be clear to both of you before the incident could occur. Uh, You know, professional when it comes to clearing a house, if that's your response plan, is important. Um, then train, you know, both the mental plan that you came up with and the physical movement as well that's involved. So that would be my opinion uh, and my advice. Hopefully that helps. Uh, thanks again, Bob, for the question. Keep them coming. Remember to check out IPS for your daily dose of skill sets and resources to help you explore your world and prevail against all for www.ipstackle.com. Thanks again, TSP. You know, Brian's been using uh, the think line to call in to expedite things. Maybe I'll start having him use the speak pipe function because there was a little bit of uh, gerbling there. This is my addition. So when I hear someone, especially someone that's not like a tactically trained individual uh, and working with their spouse who's equally untrained, uh, and, and I, they start using words like clearing a house, this is this is how I feel about that. If you believe someone's in your house and you are armed, and you are in a particular room in your house, let's say your bedroom upstairs, and you, the two of you are together because you're sleeping, and something goes bump in the night or a glass breaks or something like that, don't clear the house. Set up a Call 911, report the incident, wait for law enforcement, let them know you're there and you're going to defend yourself if you have to, that you've, you've holed up, And set up a freaking ambush is the honest way to put it. You give up 
you give up your your element of surprise that you have on your side. You have an opportunity to take cover, to use both cover and concealment. So you might want to think about how do we turn concealment into cover, right? They said the 50 BMG turns uh, cover into concealment, but you might want to think about how you create some level of cover in if you're actually that worried about a home invasion and you're that far out and might be that long a wait, where you have an opportunity then if somebody's in that house, it's not supposed to be there, And uh, under Texas law, if, if they're all the way up into your room and you, you shoot them, I mean, there's there's not much to be said from my understanding for, for, for legality. You might want to check with an attorney, as Brian mentions. But at that point, I mean, no one belongs in your house to begin with. But if, if you're basically in a retreated position, you have nowhere to go. Because by bumbling around in the house in the night and trying to be Mr. Braveass or Mrs. Braveass, What you're doing is presenting a target, and you don't know who you're presenting a target to. You, you also don't really know what you're dealing with, and, and what this will allow to happen is you can communicate with law enforcement through 911. You let them know the layout of your house. You let them know where you are. That way they don't accidentally shoot you, because sad to say that's a possibility. And uh, you might be dealing with something where lethal force is not necessary. And if somebody's going to screw that up, let it be the police, not you. I, I, I'm serious, I, really. So I'm not saying that you never would need to clear a house. I'm saying that in the, 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 the description you're giving me, uh, probably not. Um, this is also a good case for a dog. A dog will let you know real quick whether it's just a sound or somebody's around, right? So um, that, that's, that's definitely another option there. Now, when would I move from my position to clear a house or what have you? Someone else is in the house that's supposed to be there and that person may be at risk. So this is, this is why I'm not a huge fan of things like, um, having a, a parent's room and a kid's room on opposite ends of the house. There's a certain niceness to that and a certain quietness to that. And that's, that's all well and good. But, um, honestly, to me, kind of one of the better layouts is a split, but it's an upstairs split. So the rooms are all upstairs. And that way, anybody that has to get up the stairs, past the dogs, past all the noise, past the alarms, past everything else. Um, so I can cut off that intruder from, you know, a child if I had a child in my home. I'm not saying not to ever buy a house that doesn't present that, but if I would actually make that part of my decision-making process. Our house in Arlington was set up exactly that way. If somebody come into that house, you do whatever you want downstairs, right? I'm not coming down there because I don't know if there's one of you, two of you, three of you, four of you. I don't know if you're armed with a, with a, a bat or a full-auto AK-47. But I do know this. If you came up those stairs, you're dead. You're dead. Right now, if that's going to be your 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 attitude, then you have to have certain rules with other family members. And again, this is a dog thing. The dog, even if they hear the kid coming home late or something, will bark at the door. But once the kid opens the door, the dog's happy that if it's somebody that doesn't belong there, the dog lets you know. I think a dog, even if it's not an attack dog or a guard dog, is one of the greatest security apparatuses you can have. So that's my addition to that. With that, I have a question uh, now for uh, Jeff Lawton in regard to um, putting swales in in clay soils. For those that might be new to the show, I just want to get you up to speed on what a swale is. A swale is a ditch that we put in on contour. That means it's dead level. So instead of a ditch that moves water, it's a ditch that spreads water out 
infiltrates it into the land and reduces our irrigation requirements. That's an oversimplified definition, but at least then Jeff's answer will make sense to people who are maybe not up to speed on the whole concept of permaculture and swales. Jeff, take it away. Okay. Question two um, is from Aaron. And uh, his question is about swales. Um, will swales work in his soil because he's got a lot of clay in it? Uh, background info is that just outside Kansas City, um, just outside the city area, uh, on the Kansas side of the straight lo- uh, state line. If, uh, he has 13 and a half acres. He'd like to put in several swells to slow the water coming off the landscape. He re- he's included a map of the property um, and a second with a proposed location of swells. Typically, he gets 39 inches of rain well he says precipitation so it could be rain condensation and uh snow uh, but it's uh, 39 inches anyway uh, with the highest being uh three inches in 24 hours so it's a reasonable rain um when he calls the uh local natural resources conservation service about getting their help installing agricultural terraces they have no terminology for swells on their place, the man talked about. Uh, they said, talked to him, said that they had, they did have programs to help this, help put this in, but in their area, they only put in those that are on uh, a slope to help drainage off the property. I asked about terraces that are on contour, and they said they do that out in the western part of the state because the soil out there has a lot more sand in it. But around here, they don't because there's too much clay in the soil. The soil is about four to six. In- There's about four to six inches of topsoil before it turns into more clay. And his question is: Will swales work properly on their place? Uh, I notice when it get a lot of rain, the ground stays mushy for several days, and the water soaks in. Uh, will it take too long for the water to soak? Necessity um, um, larger or more swales to get proper design. Um, okay, this is my take on this, Heron. Um, what you need to do is you need to push the topsoil uphill first. Don't mix it in with the clay. Dig your swells into the size you want. And then redress the mounds with topsoil at the end. So you'll have double the width of topsoil because there'll be no topsoil much in a trench. A little bit on the back cut, most of it on the mound. And make sure you do that and don't, don't combine it all together. Run through with deep rippers first and rip underneath where the mound's going to go. And when you're finished, even rip in the bottom of the trench. So you're decompacting the bottom of the trench and you're decompacting underneath where you pile the soil for the swell mound. Now, um, you're going to now plant trees. And the main thing you're going to put in to start with is pioneering trees. And you're going to plant pioneering trees that like clay. And, and that's the thing. Trees um, are what you get from swales. Swales are tree-growing systems. So in sandy country, you plant trees that like sand and deep sands that well drain and drain too quickly, and they snag it up and hold the water up higher. Um, When you put in uh, swales in clay country, you put in pioneer trees that like clay, and they penetrate down through that clay, and they make it more porous, and they keep adding the organic matter and make the soil better and better. The water cycles get better and better, and that allows you to, to, to plant better and better trees. 
higher and higher quality. So the top of your mound is going to be better drained than the trench and you're not going to be planting trees in the trench. You're going to be planting trees on the mound. So the mound itself is going to be well watered from underneath, not saturated, but nicely soaked, give you twice as much topsoil and allow you to grow those really great pioneering trees. They're going to fracture and open up the soil, make it more porous, and that way you're going to get a better infiltration of uh, water through right through the sheet of your topsoil and even through your, your, your subsoils. You're going to get a hydration going from season to season, rainy season to rainy season. You'll actually, you'll actually take about seven years to fully hydrate to full capacity, but it, most of it will come as a, uh, a major hydration pickup in the first two to three years. Fourth year it will slow down, fifth year it will significantly slow down, and it will slow down a lot in the sixth, and a little bit of addition in the seventh. You'll never get a, you won't get much more after the seventh year. That'll be the full sort of hydration dampening under the swells. That means that really you're going to get a little bit of build up over time of dampness through your drier periods, which will bring your tree growth through, allow you to extend those pioneer trees out through the system and you go into more and more high quality trees which are more sophisticated carbon pathways rather than than being those fast carbon pathways that do all that hard work for us in the early years. So generally what I'm saying is go for it, select the right species and enjoy the journey. Okay, thanks guys. Talk to you again soon here in Australia. So what, what I'll add to that is a couple things. Number one, you may not cr- convince any of the G-men, so to speak, that this makes sense, and they may not offer you any sort of assistance, grants, uh, what have you. And I know there's people out there who say, we shouldn't take agricultural grants. Well, they stole my money, so if I can get it back to do something I want to do anyway, I'll do it. I've said that before. Uh, but but in, in this particular instance, it may be that you have to self-fund the, the, this installation because – they have pretty set parameters, and they don't really think very creatively. The other thing is people tend to get a little bit myopic with swales and think swales are only about irrigation. Jeff alluded to it here, but I have a video on YouTube called Five, Five Primary Functions of Swales. I've got a link to it in the show notes today, so you can go take a look at that, and that will uh, give you maybe some ammunition to say, here's other things that these things do, but don't call them swales. Call them uh, US, uh, USDA codes. It's US, US something. Uh, Code 600 Agricultural Terraces is what they are. Um, and, and if you call them that, at least you're using the same language that they are, but you may not be able to get them to fund the installation of these things. Though it would be interesting for you, if you successfully do this installation over a number of years, to bring in these people who said no to you and show them what it does. The other thing you have to think about is, well, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? What What are you going to do? with the property. So it's important to understand something. When you put in swells, yes, they're tree-growing systems, as, as Jeff said. Well, if you have multiple swells, kind of as you go, you know, your highest swell, your next swell down, your next swell down like that, you have a place that we refer to as the inner swell, which is the place in between two swells. In that inner swell, we can only do three things. We can crop it, we can graze it, or we can fill it. There's nothing else you can do with that. If you don't do anything, if you don't do crop, fill, uh, or graze, it will fill itself. It will go to forest. You will make a forest, and it will be a forest that decides for itself what kind of forest it's going to be. You can, you can crop it, 
with annuals or biannuals, or um, you can crop it in a silvopasture model with, let's say, row cropping perennials, like the plan we had for Alcoa in Arkansas that they've kind of stalled on going forward with after we did the initial earthworks, was mainframe swales that were holding uh, things like pecan and chestnut, etc. And then the inner swale was actually done in row cropping of aronia and elderberry and things like that, done so they could be mechanically harvested with straddle harvesters. So you can your, your cropping doesn't necessarily have to be Uh, you know, zucchini squash, right? But, but there has to be some sort of a management to the, the inner swell. If your plan is to fill it, then you need to realize you have a certain time expectation to get the filling done before nature will fill the void. So whenever you're putting swales in, you need to think about that. As far as clay, the beauty of clay is if you're putting in swales, When you're in clay, you should be putting in ponds, and those swales then also direct that harvested water to fill those ponds and then backfill back up the swale. So make sure you're thinking about the totality of the system, not just will swales work in clay. They certainly will. And another thing you might look at is subsoiling with like a yeoman's plow or just a basic subsoiler. So you have your, your swale, you have your pioneering trees on that strip, and then a certain distance out so you're not getting too close and pruning the roots from your trees, you might every year run a subsoiler through that inner swale, which over time will cause topsoil to become thicker and thicker as it actually builds from the top down into the into the uh, the clay layer and improves the overall quality of that soil. That's exactly what Mark Shepard did at New Forest Farm. With that, I have a question now for Gary Collins on dehydration, uh, and not the kind like when you're working out and you get dehydrated, but dehydrated foods and what to do about uh, making things that you dehydrate stay well you know, well dehydrated in humid climates where they often start to like rehydrate on you before you're ready. And I'm going to tell you that I kind of made a, a mistake here. Um, I sent this question to Gary. I don't know why. It was actually supposed to go to Erica Strauss, but Gary was good enough to answer it from his viewpoint, so I'll go ahead and play his answer now. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method. And a great question for us survivalists and preppers is dehydrating food and how to make it last longer, especially if you live in a more humid climate. And there's a couple different ways. There's not a whole lot of options here. That's just the way nature works. But remove the air, and more air you remove or removing almost all the air will make the, the dehydrated food last longer. So James asked if he can vacuum seal, and absolutely You can do the jars or what a lot of people do is they actually go get a – they're kind of professional grade. There's some consumer grade vacuum sealers that come with the bags and does it all for you. Those work excellent and um, they do prolong your dehydrated foods. But the downside is that you end up storing them in plastic. So I think those are, are two of the best ways. There's You can boil the food. And then dehydrate it, but it takes a long time and it changes the taste and nutritional profile. So I'm not a big fan of that. And also what you might try is actually giving it two rounds of dehydration and see if that helps. Because if you have a lot of moisture in the air, your dehydrator is not going to dehydrate the food as it would normally. So you might want to put it in for another half round or full round and see if that helps. Well, I hope that answers your question, and if you have any comments, hit it in the comment section. Thanks. So my additions on this one, if you, um, 
if you use like ball jars and uh, you you drop a desiccant into a ball jar and you can get those through many of our sponsors like Ready Made Resources and uh, Safe Castle Royal, you're probably not going to have much of an issue. And you can always use rice as a kind of poor man's desiccant as well. Uh, just a, a small handful of uh, dry white rice in the bottom of a jar is going to be the first thing that pulls out uh, any moisture that's residual in that jar. And your, your other items, whether beef jerky or dehydrated, you know, zucchini chips or something like that, will, will tend to stay pretty good. Best course of action is vacuum seal. If you vacuum seal, there's no air in there, there's no moisture. It's just, just where it is. Now, I'm going to give you guys a jack hack. You guys have asked me to start doing jack hacks. Uh, so I'm not going to say this is the best practice for, for vacuum sealing. But if you want to do a poor man's vacuum sealing, you can do that with regular Ziploc bags and water. How do you do this, you say? Well, you get a bowl or your sink and put the plug in it and fill it up with water. It has to be big enough that you can displace some of the water without it overflowing and making a mess. And then you put your item into a Ziploc bag of appropriate size. You now close your Ziploc bag except for a little tiny, let's say, half-inch opening in the Ziploc. And you submerge your item in the water all the way up until just the top of the bag is sticking out of the water. You can now let go of the bag because even if it rises up, it's not going to rise up much because there's no air in there. You push the water, the water pressure has forced the air out. You just need to make sure you don't go into the water with the bag and put water in your bag. When you let go of the other side, you just reach down with your two fingers and slip the rest of the bag closed. When you lift it up out of the water, the outside of the bag will be wet, the inside of the bag will be dry, assuming there's no holes in it, and it'll be well sealed. This is a great way for your short-term freezing of things like steaks and stuff like that you bring home. You don't want to pull out the vacuum sealer, right? But you don't want to just have them floating around in a bag. You're not going to be one of those morons that goes out and buys a steak in you know, the plastic-wrapped styrofoam thing with a steak diaper on it and leave it in there and throw it in the freezer because it'll be, it'll be freezer burnt uh, in, in almost no time at all if you do that. You're not going to leave it in there and throw it in a bag. You're going to take it the hell out of there, get it off that disgusting steak diaper, put it into a Ziploc bag. It's a, it's a really quick way to go. As far as uh, vacuum sealers, I get the question on that a lot. I use the Cabela's commercial, uh, I think it's the 24-inch. It's the biggest one they make from Cabela's.com. Um, I'm not going to put a link to it. You can look up on Cabela's yourself. It's it's the biggest commercial vacuum sealer they have. It, it's like 400 bucks or something like that. It's worth it. But don't just go buy it unless you really need it. If you keep an eye on it, if you keep an eye on it, uh, they go on sale often. You can save as much as 100 bucks at times. So that's one of those things to put on your watch radar. Uh, and if I had a great vacuum sealer to make the Amazon item of the day, guys, I would do it. But I don't advise you guys to buy shit if I know a better product exists somewhere other than Amazon. And nothing for the price and the quality beats that Cabela's product. I'll tell you, the other place that they really shine with Cabela's is their grinders. Their grinders and their meat mixers, they're, they're just outstanding, and nobody else really has a product that's as good at the price point or lower. So there's a little extra advice and a jack hack. Let's take another one. This one is uh, for John Pugliano on speculation versus investing. Hello, TSP listeners. Today we have a question from Mike about the difference between investing and speculating. And Mike's question really has context around the stock market. And Mike brings up the point that many of you may not be aware of, and that's the fact that whenever you purchase a stock, 
it occurs, that transaction occurs on an exchange like the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. And it's an exchange between two individual owners of those stock shares. The money is not necessarily, and in most cases, is definitely not going back to the originating company. And so, for example, if you purchased stock in Ford Motor Company, in most cases, you would be buying that on the New York Stock Exchange from some other individual that owns those shares. The money is not going back directly to Ford Motor Company. Ford Motor Company only directly gets money for the exchange of their stocks when it issues an initial public offering, an IPO. You've probably heard of IPOs. And that's the only time that a company actually derives a benefit from issuing their stock. Once they issue it, then it's owned by other individuals, and that's what's traded on the New York Stock Exchange or on the NASDAQ. So when you purchase Ford stock, you're an owner in the Ford Motor Corporation, but your money did not go directly to Ford. And so in, in Mike's point in his question, what he's saying is, is that whenever you're buying stock, the underlying company isn't benefiting from that. And so that money can't go towards buying new equipment or investing in R&D or coming up with a better marketing plan or advertising. And so is that really investing or is that just speculation? Well, Mike, I think that speculation is really just another term for investing. I personally use the, the word speculation when I mean that there's more risk involved. From a syntax definition standpoint, that may not be exactly true. In fact, in our society today, generally, we use the term speculate as a derogatory term. You know, for example, politicians are always blaming those evil speculators. You know, whenever the price of gasoline goes up really high, the politicians want to go out and blame the speculators for raising the price of oil. But you, you noticed over the past two years when oil prices collapsed, none of the politicians came out and thanked the speculators for driving the price of oil down. To me, that's all a smokescreen. If you look at the word speculate, it comes from the same root word as spectacles, you know, like glasses. So speculate really means that you're trying to see into the future or that you're trying to see undiscovered value. Um, it's kind of like, you know, pattern recognition that other people aren't seeing. Speculation is really just situational awareness. And that's the way I think of it anyways. Now, Mike, to get to the essence of your question, though, I want to point out the fact about the different types of ownership. For example, ownership is all about owning an asset. When we talk about property rights, we're talking about owning an asset. An asset is a form of property, whether it's in the form of real estate or ownership in a stock or ownership in a physical item. For example, let's think in terms of automobiles. You can physically own a Ford pickup truck or you could own shares in the Ford Motor Corporation. Both of those would be assets. You've taken your hard-earned money and you've traded that money by purchasing a truck or by purchasing shares in the ownership of Ford Motor Company. They're both real, live, tangible assets, and at any time it's your right to transfer ownership of those assets. You can put an ad in Craigslist and you can sell your pickup truck, or you can work through your broker and sell your Ford Motor Company stock on the New York Stock Exchange. Okay, you own both of those assets. Now let's look at your truck. If you bought your truck new, then Ford Motor Corporation directly benefited when you purchased that truck. You took your money down to a Ford dealer, you purchased the truck, 
that money eventually makes its way back to Ford Motor Company because they issued you the brand new truck that they built in their factory. Now, what if you had bought that truck used? What if you went down to a dealer and bought a used Ford pickup truck, or if you went on Craigslist and bought one? Well, in either way, you would still own that Ford pickup truck. You would own it if it was new, or you would own it if it was used. But if you bought a used Ford pickup truck, Ford Motor Corporation does not benefit from that sale. They can't take any of the proceeds of that used pickup truck sale and apply it to marketing or R&D or to pay their employees or anything else. Ford Motor Company only made their money the first time they sold that new pickup truck. But the value and the ownership of that truck to you makes no difference. Whether you bought it used or whether you bought it new, it's still your pickup truck. You own it. You can do whatever you want with it. You reap both the benefits and the rewards of ownership in that pickup truck, regardless of whether your money went directly to the Ford Corporation or not. Now, the reason I'm kind of dragging this story out is that it's the same way with Ford Motor Company stock. The only time Ford receives money from the proceeds of selling stock is during an initial public offering. And so the first time a corporation issues its stock, that's when they receive a benefit from issuing that stock. They can use that money to help further build the business. But once that stock is in the marketplace, once it's being traded on an exchange like the New York Stock Exchange, then Ford Motor Company never receives any benefit again when those shares are traded, just like they don't receive any benefit whenever you go out and buy a used pickup truck. But to the owners of those shares of stock, the ownership is just as real and just as valuable whether they purchased it on the New York Stock Exchange or whether they purchased it from an initial public offering from Ford Motor Company, just like that pickup truck would be whether it was purchased used or new. Mike, the point that I want to make about investing and whether you call it investing or speculating, the point of the matter is, is that you want a higher future value. You want to put your money into assets that are appreciating. And so it doesn't matter if you're talking about buying a physical asset like real estate or like ownership in a stock. You're buying it today at a discounted value because you're perceiving a higher future value based on earnings. It's all about earnings expectations. The reason you would invest in Ford Motor Company today is because you believe that in the future, whether that's next month or next year or in 10 years, that Ford Motor Company is going to be a more dynamic, thriving, profitable organization, and they will be earning more money in the future than they're earning today. That's how the assets appreciate. It's similar with real estate. Imagine if you're buying rental property. Well, the reason you're going to purchase that rental property today is because you believe in the future, five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road, that rental property is going to continue to produce an income. People tend to think of investments as long-term decisions and speculation maybe as short-term decisions. But in either case, we're dealing with uncertainties. What we all want to focus on as individual investors is that we're owning something that's appreciating and going to be worth more in the future doesn't matter if that future is tomorrow or if that future is in 10 years. Your net worth increases when you own something that's gaining in value. So, Mike, that's my two cents on it. Jack, I'd be curious to hear what you have to say about investing versus speculating. Mike, thank you for your question. If you'd like to know more about my thoughts on the stock market and my general wealth building principles, then please check out the Wealth Steading Podcast.
For the Expert Council, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. There, there's so much I could add here, so I don't want to go long, but I'll give you a couple ways to think about this. Another way to think about this, instead of the great analogies John used, is you're buying ownership in the company. So think about a small company, and, and, and John, Joe, and Jack all own a third of the company. And Joe doesn't want to hold his, uh, his, his shares anymore. Jack and John don't want, don't want or don't have the money to buy him out. So Joe sells his shares to Charlie. Joe goes away. Charlie now has ownership in the company. There's, there's, you're still investing in the company. You're buying because you believe the company has value and it's going to pay a dividend or you'll be able to exit your ownership position in the future for more than you went in on it. That's, that's, that's what stock is. It's ownership in the company. Now, there are some more moving parts to this. Um, John probably didn't get into it because it's a whole can of worms, but companies can issue more stock. Generally, this is frowned upon because it devalues the stock on the market. It's inflation. It's just like the government issuing more dollars. But companies can do this, and if the stock is, is moving fast enough and it's hot enough, you can get away with it. So you can, you can you know, have more. Another thing is companies often hold shares in reserve. So the company may issue uh, a million shares, right? But they may have created, at the time of the creation of the company, two million shares, So a million of those shares might be outstanding, and the other million may be in reserve. Those are often held or owned by key critical people within the company, like executives and key employees, or there's options against them for employees. So the company cares very much about the share price from that standpoint and has an opportunity to gain if the price of the shares increase. It also increases the overall value of the company, and it makes the company, uh, if it does get bought out, all of those reserve shares, etc., are available to for profit on exit from the company by the people that have options against them. So you, what I'm saying is you're not in it alone. It's not like the company's like washed its hands of it. It's not like the company says, okay, we have uh, a million shares and they're all sold and now we're done. The company usually has some containment, some reserve of shares on hand. Companies can also do things like buy back shares. That happens at times uh, to increase dividends, to make their stocks more attractive. Uh, or they can do splits, either forward or reverse splits, and that's complicated. But usually when a company does a split, that's a good thing for shareholders. They do a reverse uh, split. That's what we call an F company. When a company starts doing reverse splits, that's, that's a bad sign. They're trying to stay relevant. They're trying to stay on an index or what have you. All of this leads me to this final thought. Companies today should take a really hard look at whether or not they're ever going to go public. Once you go public, you are subject to the whims and the, the, the rebellion of your shareholders. You are subject to uh, forced buyouts. If somebody has enough money and they put in a, 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 the right price, they can buy a company. And if enough shareholders are willing to sell, there's nothing that can be done to prevent it. So that's, that's another thing companies have to think about when they do it. Anyway, um, I agree it is investing. It's not speculating. All, all investments are speculation. It's just what's the degree of speculation. So hopefully that didn't make the waters muddier. Anyway, with that, let's take uh, our next question. This one for Stephen Harris. He's going to be quite animated in this one. I think you'll enjoy it. It's on uh, the octane of fuel and using it for small engines. Hi, this is Steve Harris for the expert panel calling in to answer your question. And I have one from John. And he says, Steve, before you answer, please take a shot of scotch and a deep breath. What is it, guys? 
do you want me to go off on people and you give them a hard time, or do you want me to be nice and sedate and everything else? I get two messages from you guys. One, you like it when I bitch about someone. The other one is you like me nice and calm and professional and Walter Cronkite. So anyways, John asks, what octane gasoline should I be storing for my generator and other small engines? I have a 12-month gasoline rotation going. Congratulations. Way to go. And with 12 five-gallon HDPE buckets from a dishwasher chemical company, Ecolab, sealed with bungs. Now, for those of you listening, HDPE, high-density polyethylene, is the same plastic used in gasoline cans. So if you got HDPE buckets, they will store gasoline just as good as HDPE gasoline cans. No, there's no secret little chemical put into the gasoline can so it's more stable or anything else like that. It's just a damn dumb plastic. So anyways, I have treated this gas with PRI-G. Perfect. That's what you should be treating your gasoline with. Uh, stable is not as good as PRI-G. PRI-G is on solar1234.com. I got links on it from there going to Amazon. So whether you want to give me the credit or Jack the credit, either one's fine. Go get it from Amazon. He states, I was storing 93 octane. So there is 87, 89, 91, and 93 octane. Since I use this in a Harbor Freight Predator generator, mostly, and occasionally in other small engines such as my steel MS290 chainsaw or my tiller or my motor. Harbor Freight 2 cycle, oh, so anyways, good mention thing about the Harbor Freight Predator generator. There's lots of them out there, but I want to take a moment and put in a plug for the Harbor Freight and Northern Tool two-cycle generators. Now, these are generally only between uh, 700 and 1,000 watts continuous duty. They cost between $89 on sale and like $139. And uh, like I said, they're between 700 and 1,000 watts continuous duty. They are two-cycle, which means they need to have oil mixed in with their gasoline. So they need oil with the fuel, and it's a special two-cycle oil. They have a life of about a thousand hours, but you know what? A thousand hours in a disaster, that's an awfully long time. And these are one third to one fifth the price of a regular generator. Now think about it. You got a battery bank, you got a car and an inverter, and you got a two cycle generator. You got two is one, one is none, three is a guarantee for me. That's a pretty good combo. So Harbor Freight Northern Tool, don't ignore the $100 generators. These are an option for some people, especially if you're beginning. So now John goes on to ask, do I need 93-octane gas for these small engines, or is that a myth? Should I just store 97-octane? John, RTFM, read the friggin' Manual. The manual is the Bible of that device, and you should follow its recommendations in it. Now, I'm going to de- let me go back on something, okay? And just let me just make internal combustion engine simple engine simple for you. An internal combustion engine is no different than a damn cannon. 
Okay, except for the cannon throws its piston away every half cycle as the cannonball flies out the cannon. You take a cannon, it's empty, it's got air in it. You pour in the black powder, black powder has its own oxygen built into it. You then shove in the cannonball, which is the piston, and you ignite the black powder, and the pressure goes, builds up and it goes boom, and it throws the cannonball, i.e. the piston, away. This is no different than any damn internal combustion engine. Internal combustion engine, the piston goes all the way up to the top, expelling the gases, then it starts to come down and the intake valve opens. And it takes in a mixture of fuel and air that is in an explosive combination. Now, whether this is hydrogen in air, propane in air, natural gas in air, mouse farts in air, gasoline in air, alcohol in air, if it's a standard homogeneous charge internal combustion engine, it doesn't matter. It's bringing in an explosive charge of fuel in air. Then the intake valve close, closes and the piston pushes the mixture up and it compresses it. It compresses it until a spark plug goes off, and it goes boom, and it throws the piston down as hard as it can, trying to throw the piston away like a cannonball, except the piston is connected by a piston rod to the crankshaft, which is at an angle, which makes the crankshaft go around and around and around and around. This is the difference and the similarities between a cannon and an internal combustion engine. It is only making a fuel and air ratio and making it go boom. Same thing with a potato launcher. You take a potato launcher, you take a potato, you shove the potato down the potato launcher to the bottom. You open up the bottom of the potato launcher and you spray in some hairspray. You know what hairspray is? Ethanol. Alcoholics concentrate it and drink it when they can't get alcohol. Hairspray is ethanol alcohol. And then you spray in some hairspray and you close the cap on the back of the PVC pipe and you throw your little igniter and it goes boom and the spud goes flying out. Now if that spud was connected to a crank, to a piston rod, to a crankshaft, you'd have an internal combustion engine. Nothing harder than this. Now, what does octane do? When you compress your fuel and air, it starts generating heat. And the octane prevents early premature detonation. Now, you guys know what premature detonation is, don't you? And that's what the octane does. It lets the piston compress the fuel in the air up as high as a cannon to the cylinder without the compression and the heat from the compression igniting the fuel and air and causing the knocking or the knocking sound that you would get. Some engines have a knock sensor and they go, oh, the engine's knocking and they retard the, the timing. <sighs> when you have some performance cars want a higher compression you get more compression you can get it's complicated you can get more power when you get more compression and you get more performance so they got a you know some performance cars say 93 octane fuel only please and that's to prevent premature detonation i read all the manuals for everything you listed everything listed is 87 octane or better you can use anything, 87 octane or better. So should you just store 87 octane and save yourself the money? Yes. 
You ask now, if I should store 93 octane and rotate the gas, is there any issue with using it in the car? Listen, you got people out there that watch the Kardashians. Do you think they have any clue about a car other than put fuel in it and turn the key and drive? They have no clue. They walk up to the gas station and it says 87, 89, or 93. They have not the foggiest friggin' idea what to put in. Okay? You don't need to either. You don't need to have 93 octane. 87 will work fine. Okay? Now you ask, since I'm rotating each year, should I bother with PRI-G? Yes. Since you're storing for a year, you should be using PRI-G. It really helps stabilize the fuel, especially if you're in a warmer environment. You ask, should I treat with PRIG and not rotate? No, you should rotate. I have fuel in barrels that's multiple years old that I forgot to treat with PRI-G, and basically I have to mix it in my employee's car 50-50 with, you know, I have to wait for it to have half a tank, then I put in half a tank of my expired fuel, and she drives on it, you know, on free fuel. That's what I got to do to get rid of it, either that or go to a hazmat landfill. So, no, you should be rotating. Now, you ask, is 60 gallons enough? John, look, you're a great guy. You sell duck eggs. You sell quail eggs. You sell microgreens. I wonder where you learned this. You are a person who does take stuff, learn stuff, and does stuff. How can I possibly answer is 60 gallons enough for you? I'm not you. I don't have your farm. I don't live where you are. Have you idled your car for six hours with the inverter on it and, and then went and filled it up and seen how many gallons that you used over six hours? Okay, do that to determine how much fuel your car uses. How often does your generator run out of fuel? When you take your generator and you hook it up to your grow lights and your sump pump and your microwave and your water and other stuff, how long does it run for on a tank of fuel? You have to determine for yourself, you have to determine for yourself how much fuel should I store. I can't answer that question for you, and you have to do it by doing it, and you have to do it by measurement. So this is Steve Harris for the expert panel saying thank you very much. Check out everything I have done with Jack, all my free classes at Stephen1234.com. Thank you. I'll take a little bit of blame for the uh, the 60 gallons because 60 is uh, 12 times 5. What does that have to do with anything? So my method of rotation of, of fuel is to have a fuel can for every month. Numbered one, two, three, four, you know, January, February, March, that way. And every month, you just, at some point that you're filling up your vehicle, dump that can into your vehicle and go to the gas station, fill your vehicle the rest of the way up, fill the can up, and put it back in a line that says 1 through 12. It's easy to do, and 60 gallons is a lot of fuel. And it depends on what you're planning for. So I agree with Steve, and you have to figure it out for yourself, but... For me, 60 gallons is plenty. I'm not going to say that's all the fuel that we have stored, but for getting through outages and uh, grid down scenarios over a week or two or what have you, that's, that's a lot of fuel. 
That's a lot of fuel. And, of course, we, st we store two different types of fuel because we have a diesel truck and a gas SUV and a gas generator and everything else on the property runs with gas. And we store both diesel and gas. So then we're looking at 60 of each. And, of course, the truck has a battery backup. And also you've got to think about it that way, too. So um, you, you got to think, well, what kind of fuels do you have? And is gas always the right thing to store for your needs? If you're, you know, you live in uh, New Hampshire like John does, um, using gasoline to run a generator to heat your house is dumb. So we don't, we don't want to do that. We want to store something like kerosene and we get ourselves a good kerosene heater and then we use a kerosene heater to, to heat a couple rooms of the house or what have you, uh, to stay warm if the grid is down or we look at a coal stove or a gas stove or a, a, uh, a gas, you know, gas fireplace or, uh, uh, something like that or a, a wood furnace or there's all different types of options to stay warm that are better than burning gasoline to turn a generator to generate electrical heat, which is extremely inefficient, which is why the electric company makes so much money every damn winter. Okay. So that's the other type of thing to think about there. Uh, you know, your, your big buddy heater and a big propane tank and an adapter hose. And man, you can heat a, you can heat a, a pretty good portion of a house for a long time with one of those and use your gas for other means. Anyway, at least Steven did have a coronary. Uh, one day I really am going to punk him. I'm going to send him like the most ridiculous question that I can come up with and pretend it's somebody else and pretend I think it's a good question. And when he goes postal, I'm just going to let it, I'm going to play it regardless of whether I think I should or not. But, you know, it'll be like probably on April Fool's Day if I do something like that. Anyway, with that, let's, uh, let's get into a question for me. This one was one of those ones, you know, remember Arsenio Hall, things that make you go, hmm. Does anybody remember that? Am I that old that nobody remembers stuff like that? So here, let me read this question to you. Jack, I've really enjoyed all the questions to the expert council on homeschooling. It's comforting to realize that other people are struggling through the same realizations we have, realization of all the implications and tentacles that come with government school. That said, there seems to be a trend in the questions along the lines of, well, since I'm stuck in this situation of having to send my kids to government school, how do I make the most of it? On the other hand, I completely understand the perspective. Moreover, that line of thinking naturally follows the mindset of making the most of what you have with what you've got while you can, and that's not a bad thing, not at all. But I think we're missing an opportunity here. It seems to me that using this line of thinking exclusively is a bit overly myopic. By the way, uh, dude, myopic is one of my favorite words, okay? Uh, anyway, a bit overly myopic. Focusing on the here and now at the expense of what we can bring about in the future. We aren't just stuck in the here and now. We can move ourselves into the future. And that sentiment of moving into the future and away from government schools may very well be in the minds of the folks asking the questions about making the most of government schools. It just doesn't tend to come across to me in the expert panel questions and answers. So I offer this not as a condemnation of the folks asking the questions, rather as an encouragement on how to overcome the status quo. So with that said, what if, in addition to seeking advice on maximizing the interactive edge, we also work through the process of answering the question, What's it going to take for me, us, to be able to homeschool our children? That's a question each family must answer for themselves. And that's kind of my point. For those that want to homeschool yet find themselves in a position where they're not able to, what would it take for them to be able to homeschool? What needs to change in terms of income, work hours, stress levels, physical location, extracurricular activities, and a whole host of other dimensions of family life in order for the family to be in a position where they can homeschool their children? And here's the key. Whatever that answer is, the real question is, so what are you doing to get yourself into that position? In other words, focus yourselves on the future and concentrate your energies on getting there 
Yes, you have to live in and deal with the here and now, but if you focus your energy on the here and now, you'll never escape it. If you focus your energy on transforming the future, you'll find you're closer than you think. Thanks for all you do and for being you, uh, Tracy. Uh, Tracy, I called you dude. If you're a, a, a chick instead of a dude, and I called you dude, don't get offended by that. I call everybody dude. Anyway, in fact, my old boss from Microtest before Fluke bought us out was uh, – Was it was a gal named Sherry? She's one of the best bosses I ever had. I called her dude all the time. She called me dude. No, people looked at us sideways, but no one never bothered either of us. So anyway, um, uh, I think it's a great point, and I, I have kind of multiple facets in looking at it. Number one, I think this is something that I've tried to get across for eight years, and maybe I don't say it enough about not homeschooling, but everything. When you have something that you want to be able to do, but you can't do it now. Instead of saying, well, I wish I could do that or that would be nice, well, you have to say to yourself always as well, what would it take for that to be possible, right? Or how close to that can I get? And I'll come back to that in a second. But just the – so let's say that you decided you needed um, uh, a half a million dollars – uh, to be able to purchase a piece of real estate and you didn't qualify for half a million dollars uh, in loans or you didn't feel comfortable servicing the, the debt if you could qualify. So then the question becomes, what do I have to do once this property is purchased for it to produce enough revenue to service the debt? And if I can answer that question, then how can I put that into a plan that says to the lender that this is viable where they're comfortable making the loan? And if they're not, who might be? Got it? So it can be anything like that. Anytime you think, you know, I'd like to be in business for myself, but it's so hard, you've just made sure you're not going to be in business for yourself, where your question should be, what kind of business can I start? How can I get myself into business? How much do I need to make before I can walk away from my job? Like, this thinking is, is totally opposite of everything that we've been trained to think. And that brings me to... Um, the picture that I put with today's show notes, it's a picture of Albert Einstein who says, we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. And most of the problems that we have in society today, we're applying the thinking that created them in an attempt to solve them. And that leads to Einstein's other quote about the definition of insanity. I, I find it interesting that Albert Einstein, the most famous physicist that's ever lived, And may, he may remain the most famous physicist that's ever lived for centuries. I, I don't know. Um, he is best known for quotes about the problems in our world rather than the quote, when quotes about the problems within physics. Though I'm sure this quote could apply to physics. Okay. Um, but really, he's, even if his quotes initially were about physics, his, his words are seen as wisdom for us. That's, that's just an interesting aside there. So then the question becomes, Well, what can we do so that we can homeschool? Here's the thing. Not every parent and not every student is right for what we think of when we talk about homeschooling and unschooling. So that's not even the question. The question becomes, what can I do to provide the best educational environment for my child that's possible? That's the individual question. But then it goes to the much larger question. What can we do to provide the best educational environment for children and the most options and the most freedom of choice for parents and students alike? See, I, I think there's a lot of people who they look at it and go, here's a perfect example. I think the regimented 
government school model on some level has some validity. My grandson uh, has learned to write his name in a week at government school. They did that. My wife told me she tried for a month to get him to learn to write his name. He had no interest. He was put into a situation where he had to pay attention. That's not completely bad. Now, other people would say, well, he's five. He just turned five, for God's sakes. Um, so if he doesn't learn to write his name for another year, who cares? That's a philosophy very prevalent in homeschool families and unschool families, that they'll learn to write their name when they want to learn to write their name. But the quicker they learn to write their name, the quicker they learn to write other words, the quicker they un unlock language, the quicker they unlock language, the quicker we can put them into self-directed learning. Because that's what separates a child that's four or five years old from a lot of their self-directed learning. They, they can't use the Internet. They can't type words into a computer, see an answer, and understand what it says. They have to rely on visual and audio cues to be able to know things. So by transforming them to the point where they can use language in, in, in a third medium, that of text, we open up Pandora's box for them in such a wonderful way. So... There may be a need for that type of a regimented environment. That doesn't mean it needs to be something that comes from a, a government school. Nor does it mean it has to be, we have to figure out, well, how do we make private schools affordable? Maybe what we need is opportunities for children like that, a place that you could send your children to a mini camp, right? So instead of being a, 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 a school co-op, maybe there's people who excel at this first level of of regimented teaching of children that gets them to the point of being able to write their name, you know, cat, bat, rat, etc., right? And it's like a mini camp for two or three weeks. Well, that's the only thing that they really work on there, and everything else is fun and play. Now, we can't do that in our – well, we can, but it's difficult, right? But what if that was a, a regular thing, and what if that was an option? And what if you had the option of saying, well, let me try this and see if it works for my child? Oh, that worked. Now I'd like to get them into basic understanding of mathematics. Now let's let's have that as as a kind of like a boot camp, right? And in 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 a fun boot camp, not like a you are two plus two, right? Maggot, like not like that. Do five push-ups. I don't know what five is. It's not like that when I say boot camp. It's like a, a programming boot camp where you learn a lot really really quick. And so. That's just one of, of God knows what we could be doing if we would remove the state monopoly on education. And the state monopoly comes from two things. The ability of the state to, to tax success in the form of taxing property and fund these monstrosities. Um, and, and, and two, compulsory education. The state's ability to penalize someone for not educating their child in the way the state sees fit. And then the third leg of the, the stranglehold is this country was moved from a primarily one-income household prior to World War II to a primary two-income household. And we've been living that way since the 1950s in earnest. Right? It happened during World War II, but really by like 1955, it was very, very much the case that about half of the women in America, as they were coming into You know, the age where they would become mothers began to go to work, and it only grew from there. So even in 55, a lot of you say, well, my mother was in 55, and she was a house homemaker. Yeah, but, you know, maybe you're older, and your mother in 1955 was like 40 years old, right? 
What I'm talking about is people who are coming into their 20s, coming into college years, coming out of college, instead of going and getting married and going home. And I don't want to say, this has nothing to do with women's rights or women in the workplace. This is what happened. And because of that, we now have a society where people can't even fathom how the hell could we get into a point where not both of us are working. And women have been so browbeaten by this, they almost feel bad about being a homemaker anymore. Right? Like, you, you're not pulling your fair weight or some bullshit like that. So then the question becomes, how do we create an environment where we're not always gone from home? Not how do we make sure mom doesn't have to work or that dad doesn't have to work or what have you. Maybe mom and dad both need to be working less. And then stagger that less working schedule so that someone's always there. I don't know. That's just another thing to figure out. But but the the key is, like, all of these things I'm saying make perfect sense, but you never hear these questions. You never hear this as policy discussion. You never hear this from your politicians. You never hear this from the, you know, National Council, Council of Education, which I don't, I don't know if that's a real thing, but I, bet, I just bet there is a National Council of Education. You never hear this from teachers. You never hear this from economists. You never hear this from anybody. Why? Because they're all considering solving the problems with the same thinking used to create the problems. We have been misled to believe that the way we live today is normal for human beings to live. That it's a normal thing for a child to be pulled from his parents at five years of age, sent off to a strange place with a bunch of other kids about his own age, where one adult tells him what to do all day long. And then that will progress to longer and longer periods of being away, learning more and more, and spending 13 years, kindergarten through 12, of their life being indoctrinated into an education that they're going to forget more than half of. And then to go proceed to spend buku amounts of money to get another education, because the last 13 years wasn't enough to prepare them for a job, to get a job, to go in a debt for the rest of their life, to work a job they don't like, to live in the suburbs, that this is the American dream. And then to, 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 to propagate that process into the next generation of children. And I'm not saying that if someone enjoys life that way, they shouldn't have the opportunity to live it that way. Because to say that would have denied those people their liberty. But how many of these people are freaking zombies and don't know it? How many people of, uh, here are part of a cult that they don't know they're in? And how do you get out of a cult if you don't know you're in the cult? And that's where we are today. And that's why the people that are in these problems, that are good people that really do want to solve them, can't solve them because they're constantly stuck thinking within the paradigm they exist. And then the paradigm's the problem. The paradigm is, these are your choices. Public school, private school, homeschool. Why? Why is that your choice? Why isn't there a hundred choices? Why isn't there a hundred options? Why aren't there hybrids? Why can't parents send their children to school for specific things only and choose not to use it for other things? Why can't they do that? Why can't private schools provide a la carte services? Can they? Maybe they already can, but nobody thinks about it because everybody thinks, well, you go to private school, you go to public school, you go to homeschool. That's your three options. And in some states, the third option is not even much of an option. 
Why do we think that we need to judge the performance of our children universally the same way? With standardized testing. Because even homeschoolers, a lot of states, you have to pass a certain test from the state. Some states you do whatever you want. Why do we believe that it's impossible for a single income family to do well anymore? Because it is. No, not necessarily. It depends. Why? It all goes to every paradigm. Why do we build houses the way that we do? Incredibly inefficient. The way we build houses today is incredibly inefficient. It's energy inefficient. It's resource inefficient. It, it's, it's longevity is, is lacking. Houses that were built in the 1850s, if they were well-maintained, are better built than some of the houses being built right now. Now, technology would make you think otherwise because there's things about them that are nicer, but from a longevity standpoint, those houses were built with freaking oak, and these houses are being built with cheap-ass fur. That alone tells you something. And we live in a day and age where we could be building houses out of material that would last longer than buildings that are still sitting around in Rome that aren't gone yet. Why? Because we think sticks and bricks. Somebody builds a house that doesn't conform to that, and they want to sell it, I want to buy it, I can't buy it. Guy builds a beautiful geodesic dome house. It was a house I looked at before I bought this one. It was gorgeous. It was $235,000, and I was looking at it going, the kitchen's worth fifty grand. The kitchen's worth $50,000. It had seven and a half acres. It was incredible. It was an incredible house. And real estate agent looked into some things for me and said, the problem is you're never going to get financing for it. What? Well, you're not going to get financing for it. No one wants to lend against it because it won't appraise. Well, why won't it appraise? There's nothing to appraise it against. Why? We're thinking with the same thought process that caused the problems. So what that is, that's an opportunity. What if someone decided that they were going to do is build a company that finances properties that no one else will? Not finances people with shitty credit. Don't, don't get me wrong. But there's tons of houses out there like that that people can't sell because the financing companies won't finance because they don't appraise. Well, you can appraise that house just fine. Square footage and, and amenities and everything else. And just, well, so it's round. Who gives a shit? Who cares? Apparently, you know, the, the, the lenders do, but there's an opportunity there. And that's what we have to do is we have to begin looking for every single pain point in society and then figure out how to solve that pain point in a, in a way that is outside of current thinking and paradigms and go in and get it done. And people say, well, it's much easier said than done. Of course it is. That's why it's an opportunity. So you might find a hundred pain points and you might have to matriculate through all of them before you find the one that you go, this is something I can do. Where have we heard that before? This is something I can do. Or this is something I can almost do, and if I can make these ten little stars come into alignment, right, and get the constellation lined up right, then I can get it done. So now I can take a run at it. And, and we need to be looking at solving all of our problems that way. I have a pond on my property, even though three years ago I said I'll never have a pond on my property. What will it take to get it done? And when I looked at it, I decided it was worth it. Didn't work out exactly as I had planned, but it was possible. It was possible. And, and that's how we need to be looking at everything. And so now you pull it back to the original concept. My child has to go to government school because I can't homeschool. 
And I think what might have kicked this off and kicked off a lot of discussion about this recently was a question by a couple who had made this determination, their baby's not born yet. You've made a determination that you will not be able to homeschool five years before your child is even going to go to school, or five and a half years, depending on you know when your baby's born, school start date, and how long it is until your baby's going to be born from now, right? Maybe six years. So you're saying in six years, there's no way that we'll ever figure out an opportunity to be able to get this done. Now, I like the question anyway because there's so many people dealing with it. I think some of you guys, and this is something all the council members need to understand, and hopefully I might ask them all to listen to the end of today's show for this because I think some of them, since they're not podcasters, don't get this. Some of you guys ask a question, even if you're not sure it really applies to you because you feel like it's a good question for the audience as a whole. And I appreciate it and I thank you for it. So I'm not coming down or picking on the person that asked that question, but that is the kind of thing that happens all the time. It's the same thinking. That, like, I had a friend many, many years ago named Rob, and he'd gotten married, and they were, they were planning their family, and they're going to have kids. His wife wasn't pregnant yet, and they had already decided they needed to get an SUV to cart the kids around in. What? What? What the hell are you talking about? You know, when I was a kid, no one had an SUV. An SUV was a station wagon. Right, And many people didn't have those, and you didn't worry about having a bigger car until you had a couple kids and they were old enough to go do shit. You know, It's not like your, 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 your newborn infant needs a freaking uh, Chevy Suburban or a Tahoe. It's nonsensical thinking. But it's a programmed thinking, and that's the problem. We have a programmed thinking in society, and it's absolutely by design. It's up to us to stand up and break it, and it starts with the internal dialogue of instead of I can't or I wish I could, how can I? Keep that with you through this weekend, and I want you to make a commitment to me. I, I don't generally say this, but I'm serious. I want you to make a commitment to me. I want you to say to yourself, even inside, because if it's like you're Co-worker sitting next to you, you're listening to your phones, and you think you're nuts. Say it inside your head. It's, it, it works just as well. Jack, I promise for the next three weeks, every time I hear myself saying I can't or I would like to or anything similar, I will immediately ask the question, how could I? Or what would it take? Because that thinking is problem-solving thinking. That thinking is systems thinking. All right. That's the best I can do on that. If you enjoyed that, you enjoyed the rest of the Expert Council, you've enjoyed all the shows this week, please consider supporting the show by becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade. That is the way this show has become what it's become. It could not be what it is if it wasn't for the supporting members of this show, those of you who have decided the show is worth 18.3 cents an episode. You get done, you think, you know, that's worth two dimes. That's what MSB is. And then get your money back and the discounts that are available to you in the members area. To learn more, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more. And remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service and first responders, all of you guys qualify for a discount. Just email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences and do that before, not after you join. I had somebody very angry at me recently because one time I, I contacted you and I, I told you I was in the military. And I did 27 years in the military, you stupid jerk. And, 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 and you told me I'd have to wait till renewal. Well, I've been doing the military discount for like five and a half years. And I always say before, not after you join. If you're in the military for 27 years, you should be good at procedures. And, and the reality is I can't fix it. I can't fix it. 
I can't fix it. I can't give you the discount retroactively, especially when it's been more than 60 days because that's not how PayPal works. And you have a subscription you've created, so all you can do is cancel that and I can set up a new one it, 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 when you renew. So he was very upset with me and, ah, well, whatever. What are you going to do? You can't please all the people all the time, and if you make a smile of your umbrella, your, your, your ass will always be, end up soaking wet in the end. So anyway, let's talk about the other way you can support the show, tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. You go there. It will take you to a page, and then you can click a link and go to Amazon and do your shopping on Amazon and spend no extra money. And guess what? You help support the show. You don't spend any more money. You don't spend any more time. We appreciate it. We thank you so much for doing it. And every day I also review an item on Amazon uh, that you can check out. You can go to T-Spaz and check out all the reviews going on three months of them now. Uh, today's is a product called Zymax Pet Spray with Hydrocortisone. It's got 1% hydrocortisone. It also has a blend of three enzymes. Uh, and they together collectively help when your dog has sores that don't want to heal or hot spots they're chewing and things like that. If you remember, oh, a few weeks ago, I recommended this uh, bitter apple spray for dogs. It keeps them from chewing. And uh, I used that on my dog with Comfrey. Uh, my, my, my pit bull uh, mix, I think what he got was actually bit by fire ants on his two back feet. And he had chewed his back feet until they were red and raw before I realized it, because you can imagine fire ants for a dog. It's got to be awful. And uh, I was able to quickly start applying uh, comfrey and bitter apple to his paws. And they healed up beautifully. The comfrey did its job. And actually, above where he had started chewing, further up on his one back leg, he chewed a round spot, bloody red. Bloody red. And he kept chewing it once he did it to himself. What I think happened is his foot was itching. It was covered with comfrey and sprayed with bitter apple. And he wouldn't chew it because... It tasted so bad, so he was chewing as close as he could to it, unintended consequences. I could have comfried that and bitter apple that, but I went to this stuff. Why? It's fast acting, and it was a serious sore, and when to get a sore like that, you want to head it off at the pass. So this stuff works. In a day, it was completely scabbed over and looked, actually in like a half a day. In three days, it's basically a bare skin patch with, with you know, because the hair is pulled out and the hair needs to start regrowing. It works. It works great. And this is my philosophy with humans and pets alike. You go to the easy, most gentle remedies first, and you progress up as necessary. We don't throw out the baby with the bathwater when it comes to conventional medication, over-the-counter medication, etc. This is the best product I've found of its kind. It's about 10 bucks for a two-ounce bottle. A little goes a long way. The reviews on Amazon are outstanding. And again, it's called Zymox. Z-Y-M-O-X. I believe it belongs in your DFAC. What's your DFAC? Your doggy first aid kit, of course. So check that review out, and remember, always shop on tspaz.com to help support the work that we do here at thesurvivalpodcast.com. And that brings us to our closing song today. And this song's by a band called Rush. I realize this is not everybody's cup of tea or type of music. For the record, I've always loved Rush. I think my favorite Rush song when I was a kid, driving my my souped up Grand Prix. Don't laugh. It was souped up. It was a 400. It was a, it was a tough car for what it was, even though I only paid 300 bucks for it. But I had my my cassette tape and I had my 80 watt amp from Radio Shack and my six by nines in the back and I had this Rush tape. I think it was called Rec was it Records? I don't know. This 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 Rush tape and it had Red Barche on it, which if you know that song, it's just about driving fast and yeah okay, uh, but. 
this song is called Subdivisions, and it kind of fits with the ending talk that I had today. And since it's not everybody's cup of tea, I want to do is read the words of the song for you. That's all I'm going to do instead of giving you a message on it, because it's its own message, so that you'll actually hear them instead of just hearing the type of music that it is, all right? And here they are. And I'm not going to repeat the choruses or anything. I'll do the chorus once, just so you kind of get hit with the message here. Sprawling on the fringes of the city, in geometric order, an insulated border, in between the bright lights and the far unlit unknown. Growing up, it all seems so one-sided. Opinions all provided. The future predecided, detached, and subdivided in the mass production zone. Nowhere is the dreamer or the misfit so alone. Subdivisions in the high school halls, in the shopping malls, can form or be cast out. Subdivisions in the basement bars, in the backs of cars, be cool or be cast out. Any escape might help to soothe the unattractive truth, but the suburbs have no charms to soothe the restless dreams of youth. Drawn like moths, we drift into the city, the timeless old attraction cruising for the action, lit up like a firefly just to feel the living night. Some will sell their dreams for small desires or lose the race to rats, get caught in the ticking traps, and start to dream of somewhere to relax their restless flight, somewhere out of a memory of a lighted streets on quiet nights. In other words, once we settle... Once we don't think outside the box anymore, to use a cliche, but once we accept the paradigm of society and we find ourselves mired in that subdivision life, putting our children into it, even though we never wanted to be there, our only escape is in our head, in our mind, in our dreams of someday. Like I said, I want you to start asking yourself, instead of just someday or it'll be nice, how can I make someday as soon as today? as possible. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.